Phone lines are open. Let's do it. Critics, mockers, dissenters, you can call in too. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. Coming your way live from, well, right outside of San Diego, California. Be ministering this weekend at a Friends of Israel conference together with Eitan Barr that's scheduled for tomorrow in San Marcos at Rise Church and then preaching Sunday morning. So if you're anywhere near the area, please, please join us. It should be a great, great conference. All the details on my website AskDrBrown.org, 866-34-TRUTH. You know how it goes on Friday. Any question of any kind whatsoever, anything you want to ask me about, differ with me about, get clarification on, as long as it's relevant to the line of fire, my joy to speak with you. All right, we go right to the phones, and we start with David in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Well, first of all, blessings to you and your ministry. Hey, and Thank um, you. I just want to, yeah, I just want to talk about uh, the lack of unity and the hypercritics. And, um, you know, Leonard Ravenhill said, the tragedy of this late hour is that we have too many dead men in the pulpits giving out too many dead sermons to too many dead people. And I'm wondering, <clears throat> you know, the hypercritics, mm. uh, do you think maybe it's just a lack of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or it could be just a lack of filling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, if you get my drift. And, you know, what, what can we do? You know, you know, we really need to pray for these people because a lot of these people can be used effectively for the kingdom of God if they had the fire of the Holy Spirit. Yes, David, it's, it's, it's a great question. And uh, I have an article that came out, uh, what was it, uh, just this morning, about bearing false witness and about the difference between destructive criticism and constructive criticism. That's on stream.org. And then we devoted the whole show on Wednesday to dealing with hypercriticism. So constructive correction is wonderful and life-giving and necessary. Uh, I receive it all the time. First and foremost, from my wife, Nancy. I, I mean, sometimes a day doesn't go by without her giving me constructive input in some area of my life or ministry. And I know, I know it's, it's a blessing. It's a gift. When others have spoken to me over the years to bring correction or to bring a concern uh, and, and I've been able to receive it and hear it. It's been life-giving and wonderful. And I've sought to do that through much of my ministry, calling out error, addressing it. But destructive criticism tears down. It is unethical in its methods and unfair. It does not apply fullness of Scripture in many cases. It uses things like guilt by association. And the list goes on and on. And perhaps the biggest issue behind it is it's non-relational and it lacks love and it lacks a heart for the larger body. Where there's absolute heresy that denies the fundamentals of the gospel, we certainly call that out. But I don't know what goes on in the hearts and minds of those I would dub hypercritics or destructive critics. I'm not here to judge their motivation. I'm simply saying that 
if there was a fresh baptism of the love of God, I don't mean this in a technical sense, but just in an experiential sense in God, and there was an ability to see the body the way the Lord sees it, I believe the approach would be very, very different. And it would also reach out. It would also seek to dialogue, interact, understand. I, I sought at different times to get hypercritics in the same room with people they criticize. Hey, you have strong issues against so-and-so. You've spoken against this person for years. Have you ever sat with them? No. Well, listen, I can set up a meeting. I bet they'd be willing to sit with you. I have no reason to sit with that person. That's another sign of hypercriticism. So may, may the Lord give all of us a love for his truth and a love for his body. David, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Travis in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Hey, so I was wanting to ask you a question about gender roles uh, in the household. I've been listening to a lot of speakers talk about how uh, the, the wife should stay at home and the husband should go out and work. And, and those are, if you're doing that, then you're walking in uh, God's order. And I just wanted to see if there was actually scriptures to back that up. Do you know of any scriptures that back that up? And uh, I, eventually I hope to do the same thing. I hope to have my wife staying at home and, I, and I'm the one who's actually going out to work. But uh, I just wanted to see if you had any insight or any scriptures that actually back that up. Yes, let me first say that I will never judge a couple based on this. In other words, if there is a situation where the wife had a certain skill in gifting and was out working and the husband was out of work, but he was now working at home, caring for the kids, homeschooling, whatever, doing some of the domestic chores, I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, well, she's wearing the pants in the family or he's not being a good father. Or, no, certainly not. And, and he may be doing a great job fathering and she may be doing a great job mothering, even though they're not uh, following the, the more traditional pattern. That being said, though, Travis, there's no question that the normal pattern would be that the, the man is out working and caring for the family, providing that the, the wife is caring for the children at home and taking care of things on a day-to-day basis there. And both tasks are very difficult, very demanding and both very much full-time in certain ways. The, the mother's role ends up even being more full-time. But you're not necessarily going to find explicit scripture mandating that because that was just the culture. In other words, anywhere around the world, that's where it was done. And if, if you just go back to you know, the, the, the idea of a man having to go out and hunt you know, or, or, or get food or provide for the family or go out you know, and farm all day and, and the mother is pregnant, you know, with another child and she's caring for a little one and nursing and so on. It's just the cycle of life, the way it's going to be naturally. And then as many people pointed out, you know, during times of crisis in America, so we have a hurricane and you've got the men in the boats going through the towns to try to rescue people. And you've got the mothers clinging to their children, protecting them. It's just, you know, the cycle, the way it normally unfolds. But what I would suggest is if you just look through scripture, you'll see the way people lived. In other words, you'll see what the man was primarily doing. You'll see what the woman was primarily doing. Now, Proverbs 31, this virtuous woman, she's doing a lot of business transaction as well. But, but she, in a, in a unique sense, is responsible for, responsible for the well-being of the children in the home, whereas the husband-father bears the responsibility out 
in the field, out in the work world. Hey, thank you for the question, Travis. Again, just kind of look at how the rules play out. You'll even see in Ezra and Nehemiah where the, the, the Jewish people had intermarried. Uh, the Jewish people had intermarried with uh, the surrounding Gentiles that when the men divorced them, the Jewish men divorced them, that the women kept the children. So that was, again, just the assumption, the way that it would be. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, if you said to me, hey, on Wednesday, you invited critics, hypercritics to call, and you didn't take a single call, why was that? Well, contrary to today, where every line is lit up in the moment one phone line opens up, it gets filled immediately, the way it normally is on a Friday, or many other days where we're having a discussion and the phone lines light up, uh, we had a, a full hour of material to, to cover, which we did, but we didn't get a single call during the show. People just listened. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Right at the end, when it was too late, a call came in. But I, I would have, if we had critics calling in, I would have taken calls, all right? So here, you know, on a Friday, we never get to all the calls and the, the phones are often lit up. Sometimes the whole thing's lit up before the show starts. So just, just letting you know. It's not like I said, we'll call in and I won't take a call. Nah, nah. No, wouldn't do that. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go over to Steve in Apache, Oklahoma. Welcome to the line of fire. Howdy, doctor. I just have a question. I was just hey. wanting to know, if, have you ever, um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to know if you've ever read uh, a book, uh, The Mystery is History, it's by uh, Adam Drissel. And uh, if so, uh, I have not. What your take uh, on it? What's it about? Yeah, what, I have not read it. What's it about? It's uh, his interpretation of the Book of Revelations, and in, in, uh, he uses the 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 Book of Revelations and the Jewish War, uh, you know, from the Bible to to show that, in his opinion, the Revelations has already happened. Uh, oh yeah, so so that's 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 a very that right. No, I, I haven't read that, but I'm I'm quite familiar with the viewpoint. So so here's here's what I have no problem with, and here's what I categorically differ with. There are different readings of Revelation. There is a preterist reading that says that much of the Book of Revelation, up until the last few chapters, they already happened, and and it's speaking of things in the first century culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Now, many reject that, saying, hey, the book of Revelation was clearly written after that, and if you're saying it was written before that, it doesn't work. But in any case, that's one view. Another view sees it as more symbolic and applicable to all generations, and another view that has become very popular in, uh, with the rise of dispensationalism in particular sees it as all future, aside from the messages to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, I believe that there was certainly spiritual application that was absolutely there in the first century. I believe there is spiritual application in every generation, and that at the end of the age that the prophecies will fully come to pass. But to say that all of the book of Revelation already took place is to say that uh, we are already in the new heaven and the new earth, is to say that we're already in the new Jerusalem. It's to say that the physical resurrection has already taken place. It's to say that Jesus has already returned physically, 
Okay, so those would be very, very dangerous views to be rejected. But to say that much of the book of Revelation has a first century setting, yeah, many, many scholars feel that way. My big issues would be, okay, what does that mean in terms of God's promises to Israel, God's promises to the church? How does Revelation apply in every age since then? How does Revelation apply, especially at the end of the age? So I would, I would agree with certain aspects of that. Uh, or potentially agree with certain aspects, but reject the rest of it. As for the specific book that you're referring to, can't comment because I haven't read that. But but I do plan to write more about different end time views, specifically aspects of preterism. Eight six six three four truth. We'll be right back. Going straight to your calls. My joy and privilege. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for being part of today's broadcast. Remember, you can pre-order my new book, Resurrection, investigating a rabbi from Brooklyn, a preacher from Galilee, an event that changed the world. If you're interested in Christian apologetics, I think you're going to love this. If you want a new take on the resurrection, I think you're going to love this. If you're interested in Jewish outreach, Jewish tradition, you'll love this. If you have a Jewish friend that's open to think about these issues, you'll love this. You can pre-order a signed numbered copy. It comes out March 3rd officially, but will be ready to ship probably within a week or so. And uh, signed numbered copy, you can do it on our website, sdrbrown.org. If you want to take advantage of a special offer, where when you order the paperback, you also get the ebook free, plus Playing with Holy Fire, ebook free, plus Jezebel's War in America, ebook free, plus some other audio and video material and another mini ebook free, go to drbrownbooks.com. Real easy to follow procedure there. All right, let us go over to Chris in South Florida. Thank you so much for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I, you're welcome. I'm sure, I'm sure you've dealt with this many times in the past, but since you uh, doing the hypercritic show um, the other day, my question is: You see the the Bethel videos and like the Jesus image videos with what they call a Kundalini spirit, and I mean I'm a charismatic, but whatever is going on there certainly seems to look pretty strange to me. Oh, well, I, yeah, first, first thing, you can, uh, perhaps, let me, let me explain why, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, if, you, if you watch Jesus ministering, right, and, uh-huh. and you took excerpts of him maybe driving demons out of people and they scream and fall to the ground, and then he spits on, on his, his hands and he turns dirt into mud and puts it on somebody's eyes, okay, and does a few things like that, you might think that's that's weird, you know. That's yeah. I don't, I don't. Just, you know, in other words, you could uh, look. I've been in meetings and I've seen excerpts taken. I've seen excerpts taken from my own radio show to make me say things that I don't even believe. But here's the bigger mm-hmm. issue: 
the, what if the so-called kundalini spirit is a counterfeit? In other words, you have the Mormons talk about, you know, this burning witness they have in their heart when they read the Book of Mormon. Well, that's a counterfeit. A Christian may have a burning witness in their heart that they're born again, right? The Mormons have a counterfeit. There's biblical tongues. There's counterfeit tongues. There's biblical healings. There's counterfeit healings. So if someone is overcome by the Holy Spirit and, and they, they shake because they're overcome, and you see someone that's being affected by some demonic spirit and they shake, it proves nothing. So the so-called kundalini thing, look, I saw people for decades touched by the power of the Spirit. I've seen people fall on their face. I've seen them fall on their back. I've seen them weep. I've, I've seen them laugh. I've seen them shake. I've seen them do nothing. You know, my wife Nancy's never shaken, never had holy laughter, never been slain in the Spirit or anything, but she experiences God in, in very deep ways internally. So you don't judge by the outward unless the person is taken over and they lose control, you know, and, and are unable to function. But you don't, you don't judge by the outward. You judge by what's preached in the word, and you judge by the fruit. That's how you can tell. So uh, during the Brownsville revival, I would say, look, maybe there's someone sitting next to you shaking. Why are they shaking? Maybe they're cold. Maybe they have a fever. Maybe they're under deep conviction of the spirit, and they're just they're agitated. Maybe they're under demonic power and they need to be set free. Maybe they're weird. <laughs> Who knows? But Jonathan Edwards said that you don't judge by the external things, otherwise the Bible would have told you. Okay, now, when the Holy Spirit's on someone, they will cry in this manner, or their eyes will flutter in this manner. Or, he said, no, no, you judge by the conduct of their lives and the truth of the gospel that's being preached. So if someone had a concern and they are bringing to me a concern about what Bethel teaches or something like that, that would be a bigger issue to me. Or look at the fruit in the lives of the people there. They don't believe the Bible. They're, they're engaging gross sin and the leadership sanctions. That Those would be massive issues. But if someone shakes or falls, that's completely immaterial to me. And what I've seen over the years is Satan is a counterfeiter. So what I'm looking at is I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to work and convict and I'm going to watch the fruit in the life. And the outward display or manifestation is not the issue. And the Bible never tells me to test based on that. So I do not want to go beyond Scripture to do it. And I also know that you can make things look like almost anything with selective videos and editing and stuff like that. So I, I want to look at the big picture and look at the overall fruit. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Thank you so much. Great, thank you. Yep, sure thing. And, and let me remind you, I have a whole book called Playing with Holy Fire, dealing with abuses in the charismatic church. That came out in, what, two years ago? Then in 1991, I put out a book, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, which again deals with abuses in the charismatic church. My book, Hyper Grace, primarily addresses issues within the charismatic church. So I speak about these things all the time. Even in my book, Authentic Fire, responding to Pastor John MacArthur's Strange Fire, I have a chapter in there about rejecting the false fire, the counterfeit fire, and embracing the true fire. And regularly, we address issues, error, etc. But I'm not going to do it in a way that pleases and satisfies the hypercritics ever. And by the way, a perfectly fair question and call. Great call, and I appreciate it. All right, um, let's go over to, all right, let's see here. In Lancaster, South Carolina, Devin, you are on the line of fire. Thank you. 
Yes, sir. Uh, one of the callers kind of asked a little bit of what I was going to ask, but I'll touch on it a little more. I'm wondering what your position is. Do you believe that Jesus can come back at any second now? And also, uh, do you think that there are any type of prophecy or sign we should be looking to, or have they already all been fulfilled? And how close to the very end do you think we are? Yeah, so several different questions. I'll answer them in a different order than you asked them. Since I've gotten saved, I've lived with the expectation and hope that I'll live to see Jesus return. And I still labor and minister as if that goal is possible. But I honestly can't tell you if we're five years away or 50 years away or 100 years away. As much as everything in me says it's got to be fast, it has to be quick, you know, look at the state of the world, I understand that's how generations have lived before us. So I literally cannot tell you how close we are to the end of the age. As for other signs that need to come to pass, as far as I understand, yes, the, the gospel continue, must go to the ends of the earth that this gospel, the kingdom will be preached as a witness to all nations. I don't see that as just some first century thing that happened. I see it as still ongoing. There must be a multitude from every tribe and, and, and tongue, and that has not yet happened. Not every people group has been reached. So I see more that needs to happen, even if the Lord's prayer for unity on 17 is to be answered on any level. We're, it seems like we're light years away from that. That being said, I believe that the Lord could surprise us with the speed of his coming. In other words, we might think, oh, it can't happen for another 50 years, and he could come much more quickly. But since I understand scripture saying plainly that Jesus will not come until there has been a great apostasy and the Antichrist has been revealed, 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, therefore, no, I don't think that he could come at any second. I live in readiness to meet him in any second because none of us have a promise of tomorrow. All the victims of the coronavirus that were perfectly healthy one day and gone a few weeks later, or the tragedy with, with Kobe Bryant and his daughter and others in the helicopter crash, just other reminders that every single day people die that we're not expecting to die. So I live with readiness to meet the Lord at any time. But no, I do not think according to the Bible that Jesus could come at any moment. I do not see that as a biblical teaching. And I could pretty well show you that the earliest New Testament authors certainly weren't believing Jesus could come at any second, at any moment, even though they lived in anticipation and hope of his return in their lifetimes. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's go to Anchorage, Alaska. Tommy, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Um, hey. I actually wanted to talk about unity um, that you brought up in the last question. With these hyper-grace critics who, from the best I understand, a lot of them are biblically-based Christians uh, who have a high authority of Scripture, how can we move forward with some type of common ground or understanding? Um, because I, I grew up, well... At 19, I grew up as a Christian in a Pentecostal faith, and now I go to a church here in Alaska that is very diverse as far as opinions. Um, some would call them charismatics. Some would absolutely reject that tradition. But we're all able to come to church together and 
and be the body of Christ together. So I just well, I'm curious on how you would recommend well, we navigate that as one body. Yes, sir. It's a very important question, and I'm going to do my best to answer before the break. If I have to return to it, I will. First thing is pray daily for God's heart for his church. Lord, give me a heart of love for your people, for your children. And when you find someone as a believer, as far as you can tell, they are born again and they hold to the fundamentals of the faith, then you pray for that person by name or you pray for their group or their church. When you pray for someone, it gives you a love for them. So you pray for God's heart and then you pray more specifically. And then you look at what we're up against. You look at the onslaught of the world. You look at the onslaught of different faiths, religions. You look at the onslaught of atheism and so on. And you say, okay, we're, we've got to be together. It's, it's this against that. And that also will help build unity and then build relations with others outside of your circle. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers, 866-34-TRUTH. Before I go back to the phones, join me this weekend, San Marcos, California, Friends of Israel Conference, tomorrow with Eitan Barr, and then preaching Sunday morning. You can get the info on our website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Following through on a call right before the break from Tommy in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, Dr. James White and I have become dear friends, and there are a couple of reasons for it. We're in the trenches together. We're putting ourselves in potentially dangerous situations to share the gospel and to do debates in challenging environments. And we're both taking on culture in many ways. Obviously, God's joined our hearts together, but I have tremendous esteem for Dr. White. He has, he has esteem for me as well. And we spend time together. And often that's the biggest thing. When, when you have differences, you tend to exaggerate them. You sometimes demonize the people you differ with, even unconsciously. So if we're talking about true brothers and sisters, not heretics, not people who are part of cults, but know them, spend time with them interact, hear their hearts, ask them what really matters to them. And, and, and as you hear their heart, get their perspective, you'll find often that you have a lot more in common than you thought. And then with that, pray one for one another. That really cultivates a deeper love. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Janice in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I sure do have thing. a quick question. I was trying to find out, um, Stephen, Pastor Stephen Burdick of the Elevation Church in Charlotte, um, I wanted to know mm -hmm. if you knew anything about his church or about his teaching, if he teaches the uh, truth and the gospel. Um, and that's, that's basically my question, if you knew anything about him and, and his church and his teaching. Yes. So, so actually, in, in point of fact, in point of fact, um, I, I live right near Charlotte, North Carolina, and I have friends who have uh, attended Elevation Church or some of their kids or uh, extended family have been involved, maybe in a worship team or something like that. I've never actually read a book by Stephen Furtick. We've never met. 
and I've only listened to snippets of his sermons, but he, he's certainly a preacher of the gospel. He's certainly a follower of Jesus. The church seeks to do things with excellence, and I believe he takes his sermons very, very seriously. Now, is it the style I'd be at home with, or is it the flavor I'd be at home with, or is whatever, I, I couldn't say, but certainly uh, I, I rejoice in the growth of the church there, even if I didn't agree with everything. If I went, uh, probably every church I went to, I disagree with something. If you came to mind, you disagree with something. But as far as is he a, a, a true Christian uh, pastor preaching a gospel that saves people and brings them to the Lord. Yes, so when I hear of thousands and thousands of people in the church, I'm always hoping, are they really getting discipled? Are they hearing a clear message of repentance? Or are they understanding what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus? Uh, Are they living lives that are overcoming sin and seeking to glorify the Lord? I mean, those are always questions I'm gonna ask when I hear about large numbers of people coming to the faith. But uh, yes, is he preaching the gospel versus being a heretic or a false prophet or a cult, yes, he's preaching the gospel according to everything I understand. Thank you, Janice, for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, I am not in the position to take calls and questions about every individual leader that's out there, or every pastor church, obviously, nor am I the one to do it. That's God's business. In, in other words, there is no chief critic or, or policeman in chief or, or perfect doctrinal expert on the earth. However, if it's someone that's very prominent with a large following, then I'm happy to interact and weigh in. By the way, rare thing on Friday, we've got a phone line open if you want to try to get through. Uh, let's just see. All right, we go over back to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Gabriel, welcome to the line of fire. Yeah, hey, Dr. Brown. I've been a listener since Convergence Conference in Oklahoma City, so it's a pleasure to be on. Ah, great. What a joy. That was such a special conference with all the folks there. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Grew a lot from that. And uh, Anyway, so to my question, uh, it's part theological, part practical. So I was wondering about, uh, I've been thinking about Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 and how we should reconcile God's statement, that's not good for man to be alone, with Paul's statement that, I wish all were as I myself am. Um, you know, should single people live with the objective of marrying? And how do we not live out, uh, leave out singles uh, from our community when, especially most of my friends are young and married? Right. So there, there are a few different aspects there. For sure, the norm of the human race is it's not good to be alone. The vast majority of human beings will marry, and it's good that they marry, and it's important that they marry for their own well-being, for the producing of children for the next generation, for each thing that the husband brings to the wife and the wife brings to the husband. So it's good that the, the uh, person is not alone. So every man should have a woman, every woman should have a man as a general rule. So that's, that's Genesis, the second chapter. Then in Ephesians 5, when Paul gives the beautiful picture of marriage and the union of the man and the woman and likens it to the union of Christ with the church, that's pretty high and lofty. So that that is hardly a downgrading or a degrading or a concession. However, when it comes to the work of the gospel and persecution for the faith and hardship and difficulty, Paul's saying, hey, it'd be great if everybody was like me. 
But this is something Jesus addresses as well in Matthew 19 to say that this gift is not for everyone. So as far as we can tell, the other apostles were married. Paul references that in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, that the other apostles were married. So he would have been standout in that regard. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, it was normal to be married and have children, but Jeremiah, by calling in Jeremiah 16, was told, don't marry and don't have children. So it's not the norm in terms of a lifelong calling, but it is a calling for some, and those have, who have that calling have the unique ability to devote themselves just to them and the Lord without the distractions that a spouse and family would bring. So that's one issue. The other issue is that we have more and more young people waiting to be married, and then where do they fit in the church? Is it just a singles program? Can they be involved in couples events? How does it work? I think what we have to do is recognize that that segment of the society is growing, that that segment of the society in the church world often feels marginalized because the men's programs are, you know, normally speaking, especially for married men, the women for married women. You've got couples events and children and things like that. So I think what we have to do is seize the energy and the ability that single people have that are, even if their lifelong gift is not celibacy, okay, even if that's not their lifelong gift, the fact is right now they are undistracted without a spouse, without family. So I would say, hey, you have a rare opportunity now to use even more time, to take even more risks, to step out even more, to give yourselves even more to the cause of the gospel. So let's mobilize and energize this group and also recognize that you may be prone to more attack and temptation because you are single. So let's be standing with you in that regard. It just has to be intentional. And then you want to grab hold of each situation and maximize it for the gospel, however is possible. I gotcha. That sounds good. I, I appreciate that and your uh, commitment to truth. Really good listening to you. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thank you so much. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go over to Simon in Sweden. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling. Hello, Michael. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Hello. It's an honor to speak with you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I have a question about the prayer cloth, uh, if you uh-huh. know about that practice. Yeah, sure. And I was wondering if it's biblical, uh, the way some churches use it today. Uh, yes, sir. So we have... Give you an example. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Uh, I've been attending a, a new congregation. And uh, they're practicing uh, praying into cloths and basically sending prayers uh, via the, this like item. And uh, to me, it seems strange that you would send uh, like God's uh, blessing or the power of God through a, a dead item. Yep. And, uh, I was wondering so, so you know, Simon, you, you know where the custom, you know where the custom comes from biblically, correct? Uh, I mean, I, they refer to uh, Acts nineteen most uh, most often. Yes, exa- exactly. So, were, so uh, here's right. So it says that God did extraordinary miracles with Paul in Acts nineteen. So it does call them extraordinary. 
right? But this is what happens, that, that they would take items, you know, if he had a headband on, he's working and sweating, or if he had, you know, wristbands, something, you know, items that he had or was holding on to, uh, and, and they would take them and bring them to the sick and the demonized, and people were healed and set free. So why not? It's one thing to just say, hey, we're going to pray, okay? And you send in your prayer requests, so I'm here in the States, and Simon, you, you email our ministry and say, hey, please pray for me. Uh, I'm sick with this condition. So if we were there, we would physically lay hands on you, but we're not, so we ask God to touch you, we ask God to heal you. That works perfectly fine. But if faith can be built through this, it's not some gimmick, it's not used in a monetized way or in a hype kind of way, but if faith can be built that we're going to pray over this and then send it to you believing that by faith that there will be an anointing on this just as there was with Paul, uh, I've read many a testimony of people healed in this way. It's, It's more a matter of faith than anything else. So anything can be abused, anything can be made into a gimmick. Uh, charismatic preachers in America have made these into money-making schemes. You know, you get the anointed prayer cloth for a gift that's despicable and ugly. But uh, I, I've done it. In other words, people have come and they said, hey, our, our child is, has this illness and we've got a handkerchief here. Could you and the leaders pray over it? And we do. In other words, it's just as if we're praying over that child and by faith imparting something, and now it's brought to them for healing. So it's not unscriptural. There is a scriptural precedent. We just don't want to make it into some practice that becomes gimmicky or abusive. So may the Lord give you wisdom. If the overall practice of the church is good and healthy, then amen. Let it be so. And then ask to find out what the results are from the practice. God bless you, brother. Thank you for the call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. I just got a note that Justin Bieber had uh, retweeted or recommended our, our uh, video about hypercritics and saying that Bethel and Hillsong worship is, is worse than abortion or worse than supporting Planned Parenthood, but it was, it was a fake account. It wasn't either, either way, just, just a person, but this is a fake account. All right, let us go back to the phones. And in Wichita, all right, wanted to go to Wichita for a pastor. Sorry we couldn't get you there. All right, let's try Otis in Dayton, Ohio. Thank you for calling the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. How's it going? Going well, thank you. Hello? Okay. Yes, go ahead. My question is about uh, First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, when it says, uh, it talks about Ashkenaz, which being from Japheth. So if Ashkenaz is from the descendants of Japheth, and we know that Abraham is from the seed of Shem, and Israel by way of Abraham, how can an Ashkenazi Jew be a Jew? Yeah, it's, totally, it's a totally different Ashkenaz. Yeah, great question. Thank you. It's a completely, yeah, it's a completely different Ashkenaz. Those ultimately go into what you call the, the Scythian people, 
and that people group is, is pretty much gone for millennia. Uh, so the Ashkenaz that we speak of now uh, has to do with European descent that goes back, you know, uh, centuries and centuries, but not millennia. So it's just, it's just two different entities with the same name, which, of course, happens many, many times over the course of history. Okay, so the etymology on this is from like Wikipedia, and it says that they were the ones involved in the Holocaust. So, and it dates back to the biblical figure Ashkenaz. So, is it? Yeah, that's is a, a, yeah, that's a, Wikipedia page wrong or? Of course, yeah. It, it to, if it, to say it's the same people, it's the same word. Okay, but here let's just let's just do this quick. Yeah, there's no question about that. In other words, we we, we can we can trace. Um, history here. So there, there's no dispute about this whatsoever. So let's just see. Ashkenaz on Wikipedia. And let's see. One of the sins of Noah, Ashkenaz is the first son of Gomer. Uh, in rabbinic literature, the kingdom of Ashkenaz was first served in the Scythian region, as I said, then later with Slavic territories and from the 11th century onwards with Germany and Northern Europe. So all it's saying is there are certain people that descended from that ended up in a certain region then, over a period of time, other peoples are there, other peoples, and if they came from a similar region, they end up with a similar name. But they're, they're unrelated, the ancient Ashkenaz people of the Bible and, and Ashkenazi Jews, completely unrelated. And that, again, that's, oh, that's right. not... Yep. Yeah, I saw that and I figured out I asked. But I can't watch it. Too. Yeah. I'm not a Hebrew Israelite, by the way. Oh, no, no. Thank, yeah. Thanks for asking. No, it's, it's a perfectly yeah. legitimate question. And, and, uh, but yeah, look, you know, I, I'll give you an example of something. Kush in the Bible, right? Kush is only translated Ethiopia. But uh, we have some references to Kush that can't possibly be Ethiopia. So sometimes you can have the same name that's used for different groups or different locations, depending on when it was written or context or things like that. Uh, but dig a little deeper uh, and then just look at some websites like, you know, Ashkenaz or about Ashkenazi Jews, and you'll get even more history and data on it. But thank you, sir, for the call. I do appreciate it. Uh, let's go over to Jason in Los Angeles. Hey, I'm not too far away from you today. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Great to speak with you. I had a, I had a quick question. I, I've been reading a book following up on where Paul's talking about putting on our armor daily, and it's dealing with uh, spiritual warfare and kind of this unseen realm. And in the book, the author was saying that in many instances, since the adversary is not omniscient, it would be wise if we, if we didn't audibly pray, because then that is kind of giving him maybe a foothold or an idea of maybe a certain battle that we're going through. And it's something I hadn't really ever considered. So I was wondering to you, is that biblical to you, that maybe we would just pray in our head and not audibly? Not a chance. Not a chance. Uh, okay. Absolutely okay. not a chance. My last concern is that the devil hears my prayer request. My only concern is that God hears it. That's, that's it. I have zero thought whatsoever if Satan gets to hear, look, we're praying prayers, big prayers, like your kingdom come, your will be done. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Satan knows what we're praying, and ultimately he can't stop it. He can't ultimately stop the will of God. He can thwart many things we're doing, but can't ultimately stop the will of God. 
And nowhere do you have examples in the Bible where people pray silently for fear that Satan would hear. I mean, you have corporate prayer and people pray out loud. You have different instructions about prayer, which presuppose pre people are praying out loud. Look, I pray in tongues all the time. And some people say, well, it's good to pray in tongues because the devil doesn't know what you're praying. Again, that is the last concern I have about the devil or the devil won't know the battle I'm going through if I don't articulate in prayer. It, he, he can see what's happening in the unseen realm. His demons can see. They know what's going on in that regard. So, no, I, I would not okay, even be, okay, because, think about it. Yeah because, he, yeah, because he was saying, too, like, let's say you're a former alcoholic and you're really, really craving a drink and you're... And that if you were to pray that out loud, then now you're letting him know that that right now yeah. you're craving this drink. I would I would rather cry out out loud, Oh God, I'm struggling, help me and let my heartfelt cry be heard by God. And that's the only thought, the only concern, the only issue to me, then think, Okay, if I say it out loud, Satan will know and I don't care what Satan knows. It does immaterial mm -hmm. to me. What is what my relationship with God and leaning on Him and crying out to Him and looking to Him? That's all I'm concerned about. And I personally believe that Satan and his demons, if they're watching us carefully, they know when you're struggling. In other words, you may not think the signs are outward, but they could probably tell because of things in the unseen realm. And maybe you're struggling at that moment because there's a demon trying to tempt you. So you're thinking, well, I won't want to say it so the devil doesn't know, whereas it's the demon behind it. So no, don't even think about it. Listen, there's a time for spiritual warfare, and there's a time to rebuke the enemy, and there's a time to take our stands. I believe it. I wrote a whole book about Jezebel's war with America, demonic powers that worked through Queen Jezebel 3,000 years ago at work again today. But I am God conscious, not Satan conscious. And all I'm caring about is that the Lord hears the cry and the prayer of my heart. That's the issue. That's what I'm crying out about. And that's what I'm concerned about. Now, if it's appropriate to pray silently, you know, if I'm on a plane sitting next to someone and, and I'm, I can pray out loud, yeah, God hears the prayers of our heart. And at a certain level, we can be praying all the time, even in the midst of our work and other things. I could be talking to you right now and, and praying in my heart for things at the same time. But that's only because that's the situation I'm in at the moment. Otherwise, I'm going to pour my heart out in the way that feels most appropriate for me to relate to my father and properly connect. But thank you so much for asking the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, let's go over to our friend Sirdar in Moscow. Nice to hear from you again. Hey, nice to hear you as well. Uh, my joy to hear you again, Dr. Marco Brown. You, I, can't, I can't imagine, I mean, how... Uh, useful uh, your your ministry has been uh, for my life for my family for many years. I've been listening to you. Thank you for your ministry, Doctor Brown. Thank you. Well, you're very uh, my welcome. My short Thank question, you. yeah. My short question is about this um, Melchizedek uh, issue. Remember, I just uh, dropped you a line. Shoot you a line. Um, uh, you know. All right. Yeah. So, so to explain uh, to everyone else, because yeah. I'm, I'm, as I'm looking at the clock, there was a hyper grace teacher you heard yeah, in sure. Russia who said. Yeah that that yes. we are not priests after the line of, of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, because we're priests like Jesus, the high priest. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the issue. So I just wanted to hear your comment on this. Right, well, obviously Jesus is our great high priest, right? But when it comes yeah. to the imagery in Scripture about priesthood, 
that's borrowed in the New Testament. What's it borrowing? It's borrowing from the language of the book of Exodus and, and the priestly ministry that's laid out in Scripture. In other words, that's the model that we have, that, that those earthly things are there to give us a heavenly perspective. And we're not actually functioning as Levitical priests in a particular cultic way at a temple or a tabernacle, but based on the same principles as the ones who are bringing worship to God, the ones who are bringing intercession to God, the ones who are bringing a sacrifice now of praise to God. So yes, Hebrews 13 tells us that we have a different altar and and that those that are of the earthly priesthood can't partake of it. But to say that we now come into a Melchizedek priesthood, there's not a syllable of scripture for that. There's nothing that even tell us what it, what it actually means in terms of our life or in terms of our function or anything like that. So when I'm going to find out what it means to be a priest to God, I'm going to read the relevant chapters in particular in Exodus and Leviticus. Then I'm going to see in the prophetic books about Israel's role as a priestly nation. And then I'm going to understand that this is how we are to live as God's people, clothed in his holiness, living as intercessors, teaching the difference between right and wrong and truly unclean and truly clean, spiritually speaking, living out our priestly ministry, declaring the knowledge of God, doing those kinds of things that the priests were called to do. And again, this is just some theory out there without any scriptural support or even any scriptural guidelines as to what it actually means. Hey, we are out of time, but thank you for the kind words. Uh, As always, sorry we could not get to more of your calls. If you have pressing, urgent questions, that need help, you can always write to us, info at askdrbrown.org, and a team member will do their best to get right back to you. All right, come see me, San Marcos, California, over the weekend.